The Church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world, I believe. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the body of Christ is more significant in world history than any other group or organization or nation. The United States of America compares to the Church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. And all the pomp of May Day in Red Square and all the pageantry in Pasadena on New Year's fade into a formless gray in comparison to the splendor of the Bride of Christ. Take heed how you judge. Things are not what they seem. The Bible says all flesh is as grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord, and let's add, and all those who believe it, the church, will endure forever. The media and all the powers and authorities and rulers and stars present a mirage. Because the Bible says what is exalted among man is an abomination in the sight of God. The gates of Hades, the powers of death, will prevail against every institution but one, the church. Because as Paul says, the creation, the whole creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Lift up your eyes, O Christians. You belong to a society that will not cease. The apple of God's eye, as they sang this morning. God's eternal cosmic church. The text that has held me in its grip all week and made me feel so inept is Ephesians 3, verse 10. And I'd like you to look at it with me. We'll be reading it in a minute again. The thing I've struggled with this week is how can I bring my own heart to a place where I feel the grandeur of the mission of the church expressed in that verse. And then how can I find words to say it so that maybe your hearts might awaken in a new sense to this reality. I feel inept and stumbling. But I take heart for two reasons. Number one, even though I'm that earthen vessel that Glenn mentioned in his prayer, and my words are like cracked, leaky clay pots, the message, the truth, the content of this verse is so glorious, so stupendous, that I think that no matter what I say, it might break through to you if I can just get you to look at that verse for about 30 minutes. And the other reason I take heart is that after that verse... After this unit, in verses 14 to 21, Paul prays. That's no accident. He prays that God will do something in our hearts. Namely, enable us with all the saints to comprehend 
the height and depth and length and breadth of the revelation of Christ. We've got to have God's help. And so it's not up to me to open your eyes to this glory. It's God's business if I can just get you to attend to his word and perhaps point to you some clues as to its meaning. Now let's read Ephesians 3, 1 to 12, but let me set it in its wider context. Paul has just finished in verse uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians describing that Christ has come into the world, the Messiah. He has died for sins and risen again in order to break down the wall of hostility that had been keeping Gentiles and Jews, non-Jews and Jews, separated with much hostility. And he has reconciled them both to God and in bringing them to God has brought them to each other. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, then he breaks off. I don't think he picks up that sentence again until verse 14 because he starts it off again there for this reason. I think he was about to pray that prayer and it occurs to him, some of those Gentiles in Ephesus where I spent three years have become Christians in the last seven years and they may not even know much about my ministry. So he gives this little paragraph summing up how his own personal mission fits into the universal mission of the church. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, I think he's referring to what he's just written in chapter 2. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, and here's the mystery, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the work of his power, the working of his power. To me, though I'm just the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to help make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. And here's the key verse. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose which he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in him. Most of us live our lives with far too little awareness of the stupendous realities around us. Most of us go through day after day and feel so little of the impact that there ought to be from the magnitude of what we are caught up in by belonging to Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. We don't take enough time, I don't think, to meditate on how our jobs, our family life, our leisure, our church life fit into the cosmic mission of the church. And consequently, I think our lives often lack 
the flavor of eternity. They don't have about them the aroma of something ultimate. And I don't want us to be like that. I don't want to be like that myself. Oh, that more of us might have a manner of life that mirrors God, that mirrors something mysterious and wonderful, and our words have a cosmic significance. I think that's the way Jesus was. You couldn't be around Jesus very long until you said, there's something strange about this man. He doesn't talk the way other people talk. He doesn't act quite the same. He is strange. And I think the reason Jesus was strange, there is the reason he came across as strange, is that he had the aroma of God about him. He knew that every little detail of his life fit into a cosmic plan. It had universal significance. And that's the way it was with Paul, too, here in this text. Paul saw his little ministry. And when you view the world and world history, it was a little ministry. Just a little ministry. But he viewed his little ministry in relationship to a cosmic plan. And it was essential. It was crucial. And that filled him with seriousness and passion about his life. And my prayer this morning is that God might open our eyes to the fact that every one of us has a gift. You remember what that is. An ability given by God to disperse grace to strengthen faith. Every one of us has a gift, and though it may look small, it is stupendously significant when viewed in relationship to the cosmic mission of the church. That mission is described in verse 10. Namely, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The cosmic mission of the church is that we, the church, display to the heavenly hosts the wisdom of God. And that just bowls me over when I think that that's our job. You are the light of the world, but not just the light of the world. You are the light of the cosmos. That's what that verse means, isn't it? You have the spectacular mission of demonstrating to the hosts in heaven the wisdom of God manifest on earth. Now, in order to understand that mission, we've got to ask three questions of this text. First, who are these principalities and powers? Second, what is the wisdom of God that our job it is to display? And third, how can we make it known? First then, who are the principalities and powers in the heavenly places? Literally, the term simply means rulers and authorities. It occurs two other places. In Ephesians, and these are significant, I think. The first one is a very familiar text, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, where it says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here, the principalities and powers are clearly aligned with the devil. 
And I think the most natural interpretation would be that principalities and powers are simply the hosts or some of the hosts that are in league with Satan, his demonic forces. They're not mere flesh and blood. That is, they are superhuman. They are supernatural. And they are intent on man's destruction. That's why we need the armor of God to protect us. And then as I was thinking on that, it occurred to me that except for us biblically oriented people who've grown up, that probably sounds utterly ridiculous in the 20th century to people who are outside the church. And so I said to myself, well, if any of those people are here, let me, let me say something to them. And I think maybe we should hear that too, since we're pretty modern folk, at least under the shell. Is it real evidence or is it just a pervasive mood of secularism in our day that makes belief in the demonic unpalatable and distasteful to us modern people? There's no question about it till a couple hundred years ago. But now it's laughed at. Have all our modern scientific advances really enabled us to get a handle on the evil in the world? Or is it not just the opposite? That every human invention and every human institution is gotten hold on by the cosmic forces of evil and distorted and turned into instruments of destruction. Take several examples. Nuclear power becomes the threats of international braggadocio and mutual threats of national suicide. Multipurpose petroleum becomes the currency of international blackmail. Pain-relieving drugs become a multi-billion dollar market in life-destroying narcotics. Advances in obstetrical science are refined in the technique of manslaughter through millions of abortions. Free enterprise degenerates into money-loving greed and exploitation of third world countries. And the grand institution of the university sinks into a babel of normlessness. Are we really so advanced that we can do without the doctrine of demons? I'm not impressed by modern man. Paul went on. He said, these principalities and powers are in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Literally, it simply is the heavens, the plural of heaven. The word is used in Ephesians 1, verse 3, where Paul says, God has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's used in chapter 1, verse 20, where he says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. It's the abode of God. And yet we must conceive of this heavenly places as the abode of these wicked forces as well. I think if we had asked Paul, now where is this, Paul? What, what are you talking about? Where are these beings? I think Paul would have said something like this. They're not on the earth. They're far away. And therefore they're up. That's the way you go to get away from the earth. And that's where the heavens are, up. 
I think that's, that's what Paul would have said. The problem with trying to locate heaven is this. God and all these other spiritual beings, good and evil, are just that, spirits. And spirits have no dimension. They're not up and down. They're not thick. They have no dimension. And therefore, it's impossible to put your finger on them, say they are there and there and not there. And Paul knew that as well as we do. That's not a modern discovery. John teaches that God is a spirit. He's not a locatable uh, body. Therefore, I think what Paul means when he says that these things are in the heavenly places, he means something like this. They are not earthly creatures like us. They are from afar. They are in another dimension. A dimension something like the dimension that God is in and his holy angels. Now, even though that's their native sphere, they have a tremendous influence on the earth. Everything I just listed, from nuclear power to the university, assumes that the cosmic demonic forces in the heavenly places exert influence on this world. And I think that's proved in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, if you want to look at that. The same pair of terms, principalities and powers, occurs here, only it's translated a little differently in verse 2. The RSV translates it, the prince of the power of the air. Those are the same two words, principality and power. Here's what verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians 2 say. Notice how they relate to the earth and our life. And you he made alive when you were dead through trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Doesn't that text then tell us that the principalities and powers are at work in the sons of disobedience and therefore creating a course of this age that is a lifestyle to which we are not to be conformed, as Paul says elsewhere. So in summary, I think what Paul means in 310 by the principalities and powers is these supernatural hosts in league with Satan that have cosmic influence on this world order, its inventions and institutions. These are the beings to whom we, the church, are called to demonstrate and display the wisdom of God. And that leads us to our second question. What is the wisdom of God which we are to demonstrate to these beings? Now, I think the best way to answer that question is to ask, what have we been shown in Revelation? Because we can't show anything to another that we haven't been shown ourselves. And I think we can see by just following the flow of the text from verse 1 to 10 what it is that we've been shown, what wisdom we've been given. There are three stages of revelation in verses 1 to 10. First, in verses 1 to 7, Paul is given revelation from God. Then in verses 8 and 9, Paul, the authoritative spokesman of the risen Christ, gives revelation to the church. Then in verse 10, the church gives that knowledge or reveals that or demonstrates that to the heavenly hosts, the principalities and powers. Let's look at these briefly one stage at a time. 
because I think this will help us understand what the wisdom of God is that is being passed through that U-shaped curve of revelation, as it were. In verse 3, Paul says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. What is this mystery? He calls it a mystery now. And I think this mystery is virtually the same as the wisdom of God. In verse 4, it's called the mystery of Christ. Then verse 5 tells us in what sense it's a mystery. And then verse 6 tells us precisely what the content of the mystery is. According to verse 5, it's mysterious, not because you can't understand it, but because it wasn't revealed before like it has been made known now to the holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. So now the time has come for the revelation of the mystery, the telling of the secret. And then what is it? Verse 6. He states it as plainly as you could ask. I'll reverse the sentence, kind of. The secret is this. In Christ and through the gospel, the Gentiles are now fellow heirs with Israel. Members of the one body and sharers of the same promise. That was the astonishing secret kept in God before the foundations of the earth. Namely, that he was going to combine these two people into one new man. Now, in the Old Testament, you know that Israel, the Jews, were God's chosen people. And they were given unique blessings, covenants, the law, the promises, the worship, and so on. As Paul lists in Romans 9 Two and following. But he did say, didn't he, in the Old Testament, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He hinted that there was going to be blessing that comes to the whole world through choosing the nation of Israel. But it wasn't revealed clearly how they would be blessed or to what degree they would be blessed. And that's why I think Paul says this is a mystery. And then when Christ came, the whole thing is blown wide open and the doors are flung wide to the Gentiles. Now, the Jews didn't catch on to these hints very easily. They did not expect that when the Messiah came, he was going to throw the doors so wide to the Gentiles. And therefore, when Jesus comes and does just that, most of the Jews reject him. We don't want this kind of Messiah. And yet that's why he came Here's what Romans 15, verses 8 and 9 say. Christ became a servant. He came a servant to the circumcised. Those are Jews. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And, second purpose, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That was the twofold purpose for Christ becoming a servant of the circumcision. This is the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the Messiah. Contrary to all Jewish expectations, he comes to save Jew and Gentile and bind them both together in one body, equal heirs of the promises. That's the church. That's us. Now, Ephesians 2, which we skipped over, chapter 2, spells out the mystery in great detail. I just want to read part of it because it's so clear what the mystery is that Paul is making the content of his gospel. Let's read verses 12 through 14 of Ephesians 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. He's talking to you Gentiles, us, 
separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. See, they had no part in Israel's blessing. And strangers to the covenants of promise. No hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made us both, that is Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So, the mystery of Christ is that in his death on the cross, he purchased not just eternal life for individuals, one here, one there, one here, one there, but rather he purchased and formed a new people, a church composed of Jews and Gentiles who are both heirs of God's promises and beneficiaries of his grace. And that's the, the first stage of revelation. That's what God made known to Paul. And now the second stage of revelation is that Paul preaches this good news to the Gentiles. That's his life work. I'm going to tell the Gentiles this good news, the gospel that they can become fellow heirs with God's people by simply trusting in the Messiah. Verses 8 and 9 put it like this. My vocation is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Notice those two phrases. He's preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's making known the plan of the mystery. Paul is so excited about the fact that Christ enables the Gentiles to be a part of this plan that he can't help but describe the gospel in terms of a wealth or riches of Christ. The essence of the mystery, then, that Paul preaches is that since Christ is the one through whom we Gentiles become heirs of the promise, therefore in Christ there are infinite riches of blessing. And the astonishing mystery and gospel proclamation is that we Gentiles can become beneficiaries of all those promises simply through faith in Christ. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, back there at the text we looked at just a moment ago, the reason that God took us Gentiles and raised us out of the deadness of sin into life was this, verse 7, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You should just take that verse someday and just chew on every word. That is a phenomenal verse. God's purpose, and this is the mystery that Paul is revealing to Gentiles and why he gets so excited about it. God's purpose is to send his Messiah into the world, to die for sins, to rise again, in order to create a church, Jew and Gentile, on whom he can spend an eternity lavishing all the blessings that he can possibly give them by his infinite power. That's an amazing thing when you think that what's coming in eternity is God's devoted effort to bless you with every possible blessing. And now, third stage. That's been done. Paul has preached, the gospel has gone to the nations, and the church is coming into being. It exists and it is growing. And now the church, third stage in the revelation process, has a mission. Verse 10. That through the church, this new unified people, Jew and Gentile, 
the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now, I take it, then, that the wisdom of God that we are to make known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places is virtually the same as this mystery that Paul has been describing. It's the wisdom that it took to devise such a glorious plan of redemption, to unite and to glorify in one body Jew and Gentile. That's the mystery and the wisdom. You can see them linked in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, which says this. Paul says, we speak a wisdom of God in a mystery. So you see the two are brought right together. We speak a hidden wisdom of God in a mystery which God foreordained beforehand for our glory. God's wisdom is the counsel of his will by which he ordained from all eternity that we Gentiles should be united to the Jews and be glorified with them forever and ever. One other text to get at this meaning in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to us who are being saved, Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified for the unity and the glorification of the church is the mystery of God and the wisdom of God. And that just leaves one final question then for me, namely, how in the world do we as a church rise to this mission? How do we make known to the principalities and powers the wisdom of God? I don't think Paul means inform them, teach them. The principalities and powers know the purposes of God all too well. That's why they can be such effective opponents of God, isn't it? I think what Paul means is that the church is to demonstrate to these powers, these principalities, that God's mysterious plan was indeed wise. Now, the wisdom of a plan is shown how? By the fact that it works. If your plan to get something done doesn't work, it's not a wise plan. It's a dumb plan. And therefore, I think our obligation is to demonstrate in the church, by being the church that Christ died to create, to demonstrate to the principalities and powers that God's plan is working. Christ didn't die in vain. He has reconciled us to God. He has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Greek, black and white, and other racial distinctions. He has produced one new body. He has given us hope. And therefore, isn't it true that if we don't live this way, we bring a cosmic reproach upon the wisdom of God? We have a tremendous calling, don't we? It stretches my imagination to the absolute limit. This text summons me to set my mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. It's a stupendous heavenly reality and has worldwide bearing on the institutions of this earth. We don't usually hit targets that we're not aiming at, do we? And the target given for the church here is to demonstrate to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places that God was wise 
in sending his son to die to give us hope and to make us unified in one body. And therefore, as I said, if we fail to live as beneficiaries of mercy in hope, and if we fail to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, we bring cosmic reproach, not just earthly reproach, cosmic reproach upon the name of God and his wisdom. Now, I said last week in conclusion that your gift, whatever it is, may look very small in the church, but that in view of its relationship to the cosmic mission of the church, it has stupendous proportions. And I hope you see now just how stupendous it is and how important whatever that small-looking gift may be. You are the light of the world, but not just the light of the world. You are the light of the cosmos. The church is God's cosmic showcase of mercy. And we dare not act as if God's plan is foolish rather than wise. So my prayer as we close this morning and dismiss is this. I pray that we'll keep before us this week this new incentive. Try to wake up tomorrow morning and each day and set before you this incentive. Namely, that we have a high calling. A calling to live worthily of God in all lowliness and meekness, with forbearance in love, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the incentive for that calling is that today, right now, as I'm preaching, all those hosts are watching to see whether we are going to live as if God was wise in what he did in Christ to make the church or foolish. Let's live in such a way that it becomes very clear to them that God's purpose and plan is not going to fail.